Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. There exists in London an organization called the School of Life. They publish things online and they have put out a video tutorial for how to get married. I watched it. A very attractive, well-dressed couple stands up in front, the minister in front of them, and they look eye to eye to each other and they begin what we would consider their vows. They read from something called the Book of Imperfections. She says to him, I will fail you in setting priorities. And he will look at her and say, I am not good at communicating my feelings maturely. And back and forth and back and forth, they issue these statements of their shortcomings to each other. And then together, they read this. Neither of us is fully sane or healthy. We are committed to treating each other as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination when we can manage it. And then the congregation, all well-dressed, all seated there, they together stand and recite this. We are all broken. We have all been idiots and will be idiots again. We're all difficult to live with. We sulk, get angry, blame others for our own mistakes, have have strange obsessions, and fail to compromise. We're here to make you less lonely with your failings, We'll never know all the details, but we understand. Now, while this may sound depressing, as I watched it, it wasn't. It was almost even upbeat. Partly because there were some humorous elements to it, but for me, partly because they were acknowledging that the more they were aware of their sin, the more they could share in grace. The more we acknowledge sin, the better we can deal with it. Dr. Cornelius Plantiga Jr., you will probably hear that name frequently for the next few weeks. He was a professor at Calvin College, now Calvin University. He was a former president of the seminary there. He's the author of several books, and he wrote a book on sin. The book was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and that book won Christian Book of the Year several years ago. I want you to agree or disagree with these statements that he makes just in the introduction to his book. Agree or disagree? Christians' awareness of sin has slipped and changed in recent decades. 
What used to be the theme of common sermons, sin, is now rarely ever mentioned. Where sin is concerned, now people mostly mumble. Sin is trivialized, and we would rewrite David's plea to God in Psalm 51 this way. God, be merciful to me, a miscalculator. (laughs) And lastly, the idea that humans need a savior is viewed as quaint today. The London School of Life... Dr. Cornelius Plantiga Jr., so very, very different, but on this, they strangely agree that without a proper understanding of sin, we can't have a proper understanding of grace. Where sin is seen as a little thing and not that bad, grace is hardly noteworthy. But where sin is great and understood as great, there can be a robust understanding of grace. As Tim said last week, over these next six or seven weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into Genesis chapter 3. And nearly each week, we will return to Genesis chapter 3. So, if you're able, I would ask that you would stand today as we read God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Please be seated. This is God's Word. The phrase that we're going to zero in on today is found in verse 5. This is Satan's main argument to Eve, and it produces her foremost temptation. He says in verse 5, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Our theme today is sin as self-centeredness. Sin as self-centeredness. Up until now in the book of Genesis, the main character in the whole account has been God. God spoke all things into being, the mountains, the oceans, the sun, the moon, the animals, the planets. God created man on day six, and then God from man took and made a woman. God placed them in this amazing garden that he made for them. He made for them. God is rightly the main character, and in chapter three, Eve tries to change all that. 
I'm going to introduce you to what is for many of us a new concept today. It's a concept that's created by social media and by psychologists and sociologists, but it's out there if you're listening to what is being written today. That concept is called main character energy. One article describes main character energy uh, this way. Main character energy is an individual taking control of their life and trying to focus more on themselves, making their wants and desires first and foremost, even to the exclusion of others. When I was growing up, this was called self-actualization, but it's more than that. So we've just said God was the main character in the first two chapters. Did he exhibit main character energy? Well, he did not. He was the main character, yes, but his focus wasn't on himself. His focus was on man and man's home and man's comforts and man's need and man's life. And along comes the serpent, Satan taking on the speaking through the serpent, and things are about to change. Again, as we talked last week, Eve is not surprised by a talking snake in earliest cultures. It was a common understanding that supernatural beings would speak through animals, and hence Eve does not act surprised like we would. And Satan says, the reason God put that tree there and then won't allow you to eat is because he knows that as soon as you eat, you'll become the main character in your own story. You will be like God. Do you see the appeal? Nobody wants to be an understudy or a supporting cast member when you can be the lead. And this is an invitation for Eve to become self-centered. And Eve eats, and today, nearly 8 billion people believe they are the center of the universe. No one has to teach humans how to think that way. Ask any parent. If you have a child, they know they're the center of the universe. Now, let's be clear. We all have needs. We all have a desire for our needs to be met, and that is not sin. To have this desire is normal. It's good. In fact, that's why God in chapters 1 and 2 goes out of his way to meet our physical needs and our relational needs and our spiritual needs, and our emotional needs. Well, at least he did for Adam and Eve at that point. And he met those needs in absolutely stunning ways because he understands our need. By the way, this is one way that the biblical account of creation is different from all other religions. In all other religions, the gods created humans out of indifference or out of hatred. The gods were not big fans of the humans, but our God is. And so when we say sin is self-centeredness, we're not saying that you can't take care of your needs and you don't have desires that need to be taken care of. When you say sin as self-centeredness, what you're saying is, that's when I believe I can be like God, or I am my own God, or I am the main character in my own story. And as I wrote that, preparing for the sermon, I said, Kevin, does that describe me? Does it describe you? Sin as self-centeredness. Well, today we're going to see there's a cost to thinking that way. 
the cost of self-centeredness. You and your family are going on vacation. You have two weeks that you have blocked off. You've ripped the middle seat out of the minivan so you can fit more things in it. You're going to visit a lot of national parks. You leave at 6 o'clock in the morning heading out. Your three children are in the back seat of the minivan. And for the first two and a half hours, things go great. And then you're aware as you drive of some extracurricular activity going on in the back seat. And it gets louder. But they try to keep it quiet because they know if you get involved, things will turn out badly. You try to ignore them, hoping they can figure it out, but eventually the pressure blows and one party can stand it no longer, and you hear these words. Jimmy has his foot in my space. Tell him to take it away. And you look in the rearview mirror, and those three kids are so scrunched together that everyone's foot is in everyone's space, and you realize this is going to be a long trip. That is main character energy. Main character energy says, your foot can only be where I say it can be. The first cost, then, of self-centeredness, the first cost is we don't see others as real. And I know that's a strong word, but let me explain it. Here's what I mean. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, when confronted, God says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree? And what does Adam say? The woman you gave me, she gave the fruit to me, and I ate. The first thing he says is, God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. And if it's not your fault, it's her fault, because she gave me to eat. Did you notice that there's one person in there who couldn't be at fault? And that was Adam. That was never considered we are all experts in that today. We pass blame. Others are always the problem. Why are we sure others are the problem? Because we're the center of the universe, and it's our story, and others are not. And so we don't treat others as equals in our story. We don't treat them as worthy, and perhaps we don't even treat them as real. And because of that, none of us has trouble speaking harsh and critical words. We quickly forget what the school of life said, that we are all broken, that we are all have been idiots and will be idiots again. And as a result, we ignore others, or we talk condescendingly to others, or we call them names, or we hate, or we exchange their realness for something less, and we call them some thoughtless, harmful name. And we've all seen it in the world of sports, or in the world of politics. And as sad as that is, we've seen it in ourselves, and that's more sad. Main character energy says, I'm the center. Zadie Smith is an English novelist. She's a tenured professor of creative writing at New York University. Here's what she says. I think the hardest thing for anyone to accept is that other people are as real as you are. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things that make yourself feel better or things to get over or under. Just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are and have all the same expectations and demands. It's so difficult that basically the only person that ever did this was Christ. The rest of us are very, very far behind. The first cost of self-centeredness is not seeing others as real. 
The second cost is we try to carry burdens that we're not capable of. If in verse 5, when Eve was invited to be like God, if she had first questioned, if a question had come to her mind and, and that question was, hold it a second, can I handle this? If she had thought that question out, am I capable, we would have a different ending. You're going to have to use your imagination for this. But let's suppose when I get home this afternoon, I get a call from the McCaskey family. Kevin, we'd like you to be a member of the Chicago Bears. I told you you'd have to use your imagination. <laughs> and they said, the cleats and helmet and padding and uniform are going to be delivered to your house tomorrow. On July 27th, we want you to show up for training camp. And the preseason, you're now a member of the Chicago Bears. And in a moment of weakness, I thought, whoa, that money is really appealing. You know, I could train every day, six, seven, eight, ten hours. I could train every day for 12 hours between now and then. And on July 27th, in all this gear, I could show up. And I might even look like a Chicago bear, a short one. But I might look like a Chicago bear. But the reality is that I would be destroyed in the first hour. Why? Because I'm not equipped to be a Chicago bear. And in the same way, Eve and us, we are not equipped to be God. We are not equipped to be the main character in our own story. We're trying to carry burdens we're not capable of. David Zoll is a director of Mockingbird Ministries. He puts it this way. From the beginning, the Bible associates sin with human desire for control. Specifically, the desire to usurp God's role as creator and sustainer despite an obvious lack of qualification or ability on our part. When Adam and Eve tried to be the center of their universe, the results were catastrophic. When we try to be the center of our universe, we become control freaks. We try to control our calendars. We try to control our kids. We try to control our kids' calendars. We try to control other people. We try to control how other people perceive of us. And we get involved in what's called impression management. And what's the result? We're unsuccessful. Why? Because we make terrible gods. Oh, there are some things we can control and we do our best, but we make terrible gods. Trying to be God in my own life is a worse idea than trying to be a Chicago bear. And that's why God says, let me control things. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, it's only when we come to terms with our control freak selves and we release that to God, then we have peace. Then we have freedom. 
the cost of self-centeredness is we don't see others at real, as real. We try to carry a load we're not tap- capable of carrying. Thirdly, we dull our capacity for delight. You see, in De- Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve heard these words. You may eat of every tree in the garden, but one. And rather than focus on the first nine words, they focused on the last two words. Rather than enjoy this amazing gift of the garden and the joy that would have come from it, they focused on the one thing they couldn't have, and they lost out, and they were removed from the garden, and they found that their capacity for delight was now very limited. When we put ourselves at the center, our universe only gets smaller. And it's constricted. And it becomes a world of greed and accumulating more and taking what's not ours. But when we live with God as the center, the world is incredible. Because we don't have to worry about anything being ours. There was a Harvard biology professor who was returning to his classroom after a summer and he made this comment to his returning students after the summer break. I have traveled extensively this summer, saw incredible sights, but only got halfway across my backyard. (laughs) His point is that the world, even in his backyard, is so amazing and so grand To live with God at the center of the universe, you will enjoy gift after gift, blessing after blessing. Yes, there will be difficulties, but even in those times of difficulties, there will be causes for you to be grateful, but to put yourself in the center, you miss all that. So briefly, in closing, how can we be free from the self-centered life? I would say, first of all, through a clearer understanding of sin. Now, I understand there are a whole lot of you here, perhaps many of you, and perhaps those that you share life with that find this whole sermon series distasteful. You do not want to come for seven weeks and hear about sin. But I'm going to ask you not to tune this series out. Because a clearer understanding of sin is the first step in being free from the self-centered life. Tim last week made a quote from Julie Shears, a New York Times article called Raising Children Without a Concept of Sin. And you'll remember she said that sin is a tiny word that makes her cringe. Uh, Remember God was a megaphone saying you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. She has Reoccurring nightmares of malevolent winds tornadoing through her bedroom. A metaphor she realized for an invisible and vindictive God. (laughs) And so based on that, her conclusion was she was going to attempt to raise her daughter without a concept of sin. That would never be talked about. That is really sad. Because what she is doing is taking from her daughter that which could have helped her in life. But if her assessment is right, if God is an invisible and 
vindictive God and all he wants to say is you're bad and he wants to judge us all the time. Well, if she's right, then maybe that's not a bad idea. But is she right? Genesis 3 gives us the first sin, Adam and Eve's sin. Let's look at how God responded. If Julia shares is right, we can expect fire, an angry tirade. The end of the story will be death. But that's not what we see. Adam and Eve sins. God's response is to ask a question. Where are you? And his question is an invitation to confession. God is saying, let's talk. Let's get things back. I want to hear what you're saying. I want you to hear what I... We want to get back into relationship. This is invitation to confession is an invitation to grace. It's a chance to begin to make things right. And God offers that to Adam and Eve. So how'd they do? Well, Adam blames God and his wife Eve. He gives a pathetic answer. Eve's answer is only marginally better. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Those are both true statements at least. But they don't catch on that God is trying to help them reestablish the relationship. And so what does God do now? Curse them? Destroy them? Nope. He begins by cursing the serpent. And then he curses the ground. But there's no curse on man and there's no curse on woman. There's consequences. Man, there's now going to be toil in your work. Woman, there's now going to be pain in childbirth. But there's no curse on them. And then he makes a promise to that supernatural being, Satan. Satan, this will cause your death. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here it is. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Some say that is, he shall crush your head. Satan, there is a human being coming. We know his name is Jesus. He's going to crush you, Satan. What grace! Eve gets deceived. God, the true character, the true main character in the story, he responds, not it's okay, but I'm going to raise up a human being to destroy Satan and to redeem you back and all the rest of humanity. Julia Shears is wrong. God is not a malevolent, invisible, vindictive God. Rather, God is the one that takes our brokenness and offers redemption and healing. Oh, it's going to take time. It would take thousands of years, but eventually Jesus will be the human being who will come and give his life and die and rise again, and that will crush Satan's head and give us victory over sin and death and hell. It would cost Jesus three days of his life. This is an offer of grace. This is not cheap grace. This is very, very costly grace, but it's a rich full, powerful grace. So how can we be free from the self-centered life? First, see sin for what it is. Secondly, when you see sin for what it is, you can understand grace for what it is. 
When you understand grace for what it is, we can confess our sin to him and experience new life. That's what he's asking us to do. I'm opening it up for confession. And we confess our sin to him and experience new life. Then we can have ultimate freedom and forgiveness. Max Lucado says this, Confession is not telling God what he doesn't know. That's impossible. Confession is not complaining. If I merely recite my problems and rehash my woes, then I'm just whining. Confession is not blaming. Pointing fingers at others without pointing any at me feels good, but it doesn't promote healing. Confession is so much more. Here it is. Confession is a radical reliance on grace. A proclamation that our trust in God's goodness what I did was bad, we acknowledge, but grace is greater than my sin. And so I confess it. Most of us here today have experienced that grace personally. Most of us here today have said, I choose to have Jesus and his life and death and resurrection pay for my sin so that I can have a good... I realize I'm not the center of my universe. But I also know there are some today here that if they're going to be honest would say, yeah, I still want to be the center of my own universe. Today would be a great day to give that idea up. Our sin is self-centeredness. Our salvation is God's grace. Let's pray. Dear God, all we can come to you and do is give you thanks because we don't deserve any of this. And we can't earn any of it. We're not good enough. That you love us and create us and after we fail, you still come back and redeem us to be your own. I don't get that. But you do that. Dear God, as we respond in grace, help us to rejoice. But do help us to respond by accepting your grace, by not trying to insist on running things ourselves and our own way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.